iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yo, technology, what is it all about? People often ask, am I optimistic or pessimistic? And the answer is both. That's why we talk about tools and weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Yeah, I actually think we're well served to go back and recall what George Orwell wrote 70 years ago in his novel 1984 and remember that it wasn't a prediction but a warning. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. This week, we have a very special guest, Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, that little $1 trillion company up in Seattle, is on the program. Now, I was very excited to sit down with Smith because I'd been following him for a while, not in a stalkery way, but in a kind of a journalistic way. You see, because amid all of the worry and scare stories and the warnings both real and imagined about AI destroying jobs about facial recognition software being used to create surveillance states all these big thorny questions facing the tech industry most of the big guys the guys who are creating this stuff have been pretty lily-livered when it comes to actually talking about it how they approach it what could go wrong what their policies are etc but Smith who's been at Microsoft for 26 years and is the right-hand man to Satya Nadella, the chief executive, is actually pretty forthright about this stuff. And he's been perhaps one of the clearest and consistent voices um, talking about some of these biggest issues in a pretty straightforward way. And now he's written a book about it called Tools and Weapons. So a few weeks ago, I flew up to Seattle to meet him in what could only be described as a very Microsoft corner office. It was in a low-slung building that was unrecognizable from any of the other countless low-slung buildings on Microsoft's corporate campus. His office was relatively small. Carpet was thin and beige. And Smith was drinking a very tall, brimming black coffee out of a paper cup emblazoned with the Microsoft logo. Smith is very thoughtful about the big issues facing the industry, and we covered them all. So I think you'll really enjoy this one. So I'm going to stop talking and let him take over. So without further ado, here is Brad Smith, president of Microsoft. Yeah, so this is a mobile podcast recording studio. I like it. Here we are. Well, first of all, thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. So I've read your book. One of the things that struck me is that you spent a lot of your time suing the government. More than we anticipated we did when this decade began, that's for sure. Yes. It's an interesting way for me to kind of just, as a jumping off point, because obviously the history with Microsoft is you had a very long, bruising, painful battle with the government. And then this decade, it feels like you're spending a lot of your time actually suing them. One of the stats was something around the number of warrants or requests from various governments you get. And it was an astounding figure. Well, you know, as you capture one of the sets of stories we really try to bring to life in the book is the inside deliberations, if you will, that have led us to sue the government several times. And like many things in life, it started as a journey. It was one case in 2013 when the government wouldn't allow us to publish information about 
the number of national security letters and other types of warrants we were getting. 50,000 requests a year from 75 countries. Yeah. And then the sheer volume of what we were getting not only led us to want to share that information, but to dig more deeply. And one of the things that we learned as we did was that we felt that the government, or really governments in some cases, you were really going to tech companies too routinely rather than to the people who's, who own the information they're seeking. And not only were they seeking the data from tech companies, but they were doing it with too many so-called gag orders that would prevent us from telling a customer, in some cases forever, that the government had their email. Thousands of gag orders a year. You exactly. So, you know, it is precisely that kind of information that led us to be more concerned and ultimately to start bringing more lawsuits ourselves. Before we kind of dive in, but if you could just give a brief potted history of how long you've been here and what you've been doing, because I think it's illustrative of why you're doing what you're doing now. Well, I've been at Microsoft for almost 26 years. Um, I was a lawyer in private practice at Covington and Burling, first in Washington, D.C., and then in London. And when I was in London, I started to work with the software industry and then Microsoft in particular. This was really in the early 1990s. And uh, I moved from London to Paris, joined Microsoft there, led our European legal and corporate affairs team for three years, and, and then moved to Seattle, where I had never lived before. That was in 1996. So you were there when Microsoft was getting sued and the government was trying to basically break you up. Absolutely. One of the things we note in the book is that the antitrust saga against Microsoft, which many people have forgotten, understandably so, in fact lasted 29 years. It began in... 29 years? Yeah, Yeah, which is not as atypical as most people would think. IBM, AT&T, these other big tech companies when they really landed in the crosshairs of governments and couldn't work out their difficulties, had issues and cases that lasted for decades. In Microsoft's case, the 1990 uh, milestone was the opening of an investigation by the Federal Trade Commission. The very last issue was resolved in three Canadian uh, provinces, literally just in the past year. But the real climax in most people's minds was, you know, between the late 1990s and the late 2000s, first in the United States and then in Europe. And so I absolutely lived through all of that. And we share some of the perspectives gained and insights uh, gained, uh, lessons learned, if you will, from having had that experience. So that's what I think is interesting. So I'm from the Bay Area. I lived abroad for many years, and then I just moved back a couple of years ago. And what struck me is just how, kind of how adversarial Silicon Valley feels toward Washington, D.C., and the kind of the disintegration of that relationship, especially in the last couple of years, or the kind of hardening of the battle lines. Mm-hmm. And what st- struck me as interesting about, about Microsoft's approach is, I mean, you in particular seem to be the person who's out there being like, all right, we're going to talk about these issues. We're going to talk about why we work with the Pentagon. We're going to talk about why we're developing facial recognition technology and how we want to use it, et cetera. Is your willingness to do that or your kind of approach to the government colored by this 29-year saga being on the other side? You know, we're all products of our own experience. And, you know, for somebody like me, uh, as well as, you know, somebody like Satya Nadella or Bill Gates, we all lived through what it meant to go to work every day and, in effect, be engaged in a battle with the government we learned that there are better ways. It doesn't mean you can always avoid a battle. Sometimes you have to fight battles. In fact, when we sue the government, we're picking battles, if you will. But we definitely concluded that we needed to acknowledge problems and challenges and issues. We needed to develop Which wasn't where you started. That's not where Microsoft was 26 years ago, by and large, I would say. I feel like we're just getting now to the stage where like Facebook, Google, et cetera, YouTube, all the big platforms are starting to at least mouthing. They're like, okay, yeah, there's some problems here. We should probably deal with them. But basically, hands off, we'll do it ourselves. We're the best equipped to do this. And it does feel like there's still a long way to go before you get to a point where actually... The government and the industry might be working in tandem in a way that's actually productive rather than just this like legal fisticuffs that gets nobody anywhere. I think the industry is changing. 
but change is uh, a process. It's a journey, and it doesn't uh, happen in a day or a month or typically even a year if the change you're talking about is big. You know, you have CEOs today say, yes, there is a role for regulation. They didn't say that three years ago. But people have sort of stopped there, by and large. They yeah. haven't yet engaged in trying to define what the law or regulation should look like. We probably are more comfortable than many companies, at least, in taking that next step. And one of the reasons is absolutely, I think, the experience that we had, the painful experience we had, uh, and what we learned as a result. Are you optimistic that if I'm, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Larry Page or any of these guys that I'm going to have that they're going to have to go through a similar saga before they come out the other and be like, we should have just done this differently. We should approach this in a better way. Um, because when we talk about because a lot of, you know, you call the book tools and weapons. Right. We're talking about stuff that's really powerful now when you're talking about AI and facial recognition technology and all of this stuff does feel like these are pretty weighty, influential things that are going to be impacting people's lives in a pretty fundamental way. And right now, it's just, there's no, nobody wants to even talk about it. That's why we wrote the book. It's a conversation that the world needs to have. Uh, This technology is not just powerful, but it's ubiquitous. It is a wonderful tool, in our view, to address many huge opportunities and societal challenges. But technology is and has been weaponized. Technology always has been, starting with fire. Mm -hmm. And we see it weaponized intentionally in some cases by, for example, foreign governments engaged in cyber attacks. We see it weaponized in ways that people would call unintentional, perhaps, in terms of the issues around privacy and what can happen with data and the like. We see the impact on jobs, on the economy, on income inequality, all these things. We wrote the book both to make the issues and and trends more accessible to people, and largely by bringing stories to stories, life, yeah. but also to make an argument. And our argument is that the tech sector does need to acknowledge these issues. It needs to address them head on. It needs to step up and do more itself. And it needs to work more closely with governments and other stakeholders recognizing that they, too, have a very vital role to play. That's a cultural revolution, though. It's interesting because Bill Gates was nice enough to write the the foreword for the book. And one of the points he made is that at Microsoft, we had to go through a cultural change here as a result of the antitrust issues. In a sense, that's how the book begins. And we describe the various aspects of the cultural change that we believe is needed. And then the book concludes with an explicit call for other tech companies and the tech sector and and all of us, even at Microsoft ourselves, to embrace this need for ongoing cultural change. This isn't a case of, uh, oh, everybody else should do what we did. We ourselves are having to continue to go through this. And because the issues are so complicated and important, I wouldn't want anybody to think that we figured it all out. We're still working through it, too. Well, one of the things I thought was interesting is a lot of the framing is done via history Mm -hmm. for some of the big themes here. And so you talk about data privacy. There's a chapter on data privacy. And you start with a story about Nazi Germany. Why? Yeah, Mark Twain once purportedly said, uh, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it rhymes. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, it, there's a lot of value in understanding history because uh, it informs the issues of today and we can learn from it. Germany is one of the best places in the world to go to to really think about privacy. We describe what it meant to go through a prison that was used by communist East Germany and to learn, as we did, as we share in the book, the opportunity to hear directly from somebody who spent almost a year in that prison for really doing in 1968 uh, what you would think of today as posting something on Instagram or sending an email. He he and three of his friends handed out leaflets in the evening on the streets of Berlin when troops moved into Czechoslovakia to, in effect, bring an end to the Prague Spring. 
And it's just this incredibly powerful reminder of the dangers that are created when data falls into the wrong hands. And it's the type of episode that I think everybody who works in the tech sector or frankly anybody who thinks or cares about technology at all benefits from reading about and 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 learning from uh, you know in a sense what we are trying to do with this book is level the playing field and equip more people to see what we've had the opportunity to see so that they're better informed and, and can be more thoughtful one of the things I wanted to get to is that you know you're kind of on the coal face so to speak. So you're seeing a lot of, you know, what the technology you're developing is capable of doing. And then you refer often to, you know, government X came to us and wanted to buy our facial recognition technology and install it in their capital city. But it's a dictatorship or there's not a rule of law or whatever. You can pretty quickly get to a dystopian place. Is that another reason why motivation for writing this book is like, look, this stuff is, it might not be you, but somebody's going to sell this to dictator x and it's going to take a pretty nasty turn it is such an interesting anecdote to me you know the notion of a government coming to us asking to use our facial recognition technology in a way that as we thought it through and as we share in the book would open the door to potential mass surveillance people often ask am i optimistic or pessimistic and the answer is both that's why we talk about tools and weapons mm-hmm. uh and Yeah, I actually think we're well served to go back and recall what George Orwell wrote 70 years ago in his novel 1984 and remember that it wasn't a prediction but a warning. And in a similar vein, there are aspects of the book where we try to paint the picture of some of the challenges that technology is creating, not because we think that's an inevitable outcome, but because it's the best way to avoid that outcome, to really think about that scenario and then consider the steps that are needed to avoid it. Because I've read some of the blog posts that you've written in the last year, 18 months. We've covered a lot of the kind of the um, the kind of cultural moment that mm-hmm. is happening in Silicon Valley, especially at places like Google, where they had, you know, where they basically pulled out of the Pentagon contract after, after it was revealed. And then... You would wrote something basically saying, we're not doing that. We're going to be engaged. We're going to work for the Defense Department, and here's why. Have you been had to deal with the kind of the similar kind of uh, internal unrest amongst your employees? Because it does feel like you talk about one of the um, – some other tech executives said, like, I can kind of handle running a company. What I can't handle is, like, you know, dealing with what my, with what my employees think about climate change or fake news. It is definitely an issue that we've had to address head-on at Microsoft. Uh, and is that different? In other words, is this kind of a bit of a sea change in the way that it is bubbling up? Absolutely. We have noted to ourselves here at Microsoft that leading a tech company in 2019 is almost fundamentally different from what, what it meant to lead it in 2014, five years ago. Um, Just five years ago. Just five years ago. Just four years ago. I mean, I think that there has been an enormous change. You know, it's why we share the story in the book about the employee activism at Microsoft and, you know, the questions that people have asked at times, the petitions that people have signed when they have objected to, uh, you know, what a particular customer is doing and and want us to take uh, action. Frankly, what we really try to walk people through in the book is how we've been forced to think about this, how difficult it is. And if there's one point that rises to the top in my mind that we talk explicitly about, it's our conclusion that there are definitely times when employees might not have the right answer, Mm -hmm. in our view, but they're asking the right question. And you're therefore best served by engaging in real dialogue and pushing yourself to think hard and then ultimately developing a principled approach and then being very transparent internally and externally so people know what you're doing and why. When we've looked for examples of institutions that do this well, we've considered universities because universities mm-hmm. have often had student protests, obviously going back at this point five or six decades. And we found 
the ability to apply some of that learning to be enormously beneficial for helping ourselves get through this. And when you say it's fundamentally different from even four or five years ago, what's changed? Is it is it the power of the technology or is it generational kind of Gen Y and Z coming into the workforce or, or what? I think it is in part the power of the technology and in part it is a generational shift. But I think more than anything else in the world today, or at least in the United States today, we have employees that are moved by a profound commitment to having a sense of purpose and wanting their employer to share that sense of purpose. And they care so deeply about what their employer does on a particular issue. They want to have a voice to help shape what their employer does. This is at a time when people oftentimes have less confidence or trust in government. Certainly in the United States, you see that in the polling. Um, But they do have trust in their employer, interestingly enough. And that, in fact, is putting more pressure, uh, if you will, on their expectations of their employer and their desire to engage in real conversation. Do people see this as like they're citizens, Microsoft citizens in a way? Because, I mean, you're a trillion-dollar company. You are a entity unto yourself. To your point, if people lose faith in all these other institutions, but they have this one thing that is at the center of their life, they want more from it. I think that you, you your use of that phrase is actually interesting and you know, reasonably apt. I mean, people do think of themselves as employees and to some degree citizens of Microsoft, and part of their identity is defined in those terms. So it's not surprising. I mean, our view is actually we're proud that people care, and we're pleased that people bring these concerns and issues to us. We don't want to turn them away, and at the same time, you can't have decision-making by petition. You actually have leadership that needs to think, but think in a way that moves forward with employees and doesn't do it in some separate ivory tower. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I have a few technology questions. So AI. Yeah. Everybody's an AI company. I just put a .io at the end of my website and I can raise a bunch of money. Is this time different? In other words, I was thinking I was reading the other day, IBM has just come out with a report. hundred and... 20 million people are going to have to be retrained in the next three years globally. I don't really know what that means in the context of 7 billion people. Is this just like, you know, yet another incremental development of a technology that's going to eliminate some jobs but create new ones? Or is there something more fundamental going on? I think there is something more fundamental going on. We really strive in the book to do two things with respect to AI. The first is demystify it. Yeah. You know, to describe the different technologies that are involved and why 2019 is different from prior periods of time when there's been hype. And just explain to people in layperson's terms you know, what machine learning is, how it works, how it connects with the other computing attributes that need to come together. But then the, the second thing we do in the book is then put these developments in AI in the proper historical context, at least as we see it, which is why we then have a chapter about the impact of AI on jobs. Mm. And I think the thing that will probably surprise most people is that that chapter begins not by talking about AI, but the very last day in New York City in 1922, when there was a horse-drawn fire engine. 
because in many ways we regard the transition we're starting to go through as comparable in impact as the transition from the horse to the combustion engine. Right. And in fact, we look at the economic effects over the course of a few decades, directly and indirectly, that resulted from the move to the combustion engine and then try to apply that to think about what it will mean for jobs, the economy, and skills. And frankly, the fact that in our view, this is likely to be a bumpy ride. It almost always is. It doesn't mean that things don't work out well in the long run. I might argue in the long run, it almost always works out well because 40 or 50 years later, the adjustment has been made. What we really all need help with as citizens, as consumers, as people who might want to have a job uh, is how to think about the time between here and then. Right. So how do you think about it? <laughs> because, I, I mean, you know, for example, you, you're uh, referring to, you know, horse-drawn carriage to combustion engine. I, you, you know, you basically you're re- retraining people to shod horses to fix a, fix a car. I think there's three questions we try to help people think about. The first is, what jobs are going to go away? Yeah, you know, we acknowledge that there's no perfect crystal ball. Yeah. But we actually uh, you, you go through you know, what AI can do well and describe it because if AI can do it well, then the job that, uh, that involves a human is more likely to go away. Yep. The second thing we focus a bit on is, well, what jobs will be created, which we acknowledge is harder. But you can start to predict what jobs will need to be created. And then the third part is really, in many ways, the most important part what skills will be needed. Because even if a job is here to stay, it will change. AI will change the job. And if there's an aspect of what we describe that I think is cause for optimism, it is our view that the jobs of the future that are influenced by by AI will, of course, require that we learn a little bit more computer science or data science or develop more technical acumen, but not that alone. Because the essence of AI in so many ways is about enabling computers to think like human beings, what we should all aspire for, for our, our societies, is all the dimensions and disciplines that are important to human thinking. Um, One of the points we make is that we think that there will be more jobs in tech companies a decade from now that involve people from the social sciences and the humanities. And of course, we uh, also point out that the timing of all of this is notoriously difficult to predict. Um, One story that I always enjoy the retelling that we share in the book is the meeting that Satya Nadella, our CEO, and I had with uh, with Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, in her office in Berlin. And Satya was describing the impact that he thought AI would have on jobs for interpreters. And he said, oh, AI is going to replace interpreters. And there was a fourth person in the room. It was a woman who was an interpreter. <laughs> and he suddenly realized, oh, wait a second, I just said something that might not yeah. be popular with her and he looked at her and he said sorry and she didn't bat an eye immediately she just said oh don't worry somebody from IBM told me the same thing 20 years ago and I'm still here change is coming but the ability to predict the precise timeline is far more difficult what is interesting just I mean, similar in my job transcription yes we used to be the band of my existence three years ago I signed up with a company that was charging $40 for four hours of transcription they found a new company charges nine dollars for six thousand hours. I mean, it's basically gonna, it's basically free or getting close to it in the space of a few years, and that alone dramatically changes my life. But also, just it's it's amazing. It's just snap your fingers, and all of a sudden, this problem is solved. That first of all is a feature that we see repeatedly and believe we will see Mm. in the advent of AI. And we actually analogize again to the automobile and the combustion engine and the fact that you could look at it, you can look at a photograph of New York City in 1905 and you'll see Broadway and you won't see a single car. 
you see horses and trolleys. And you look at the same uh, intersection literally in a photograph 15 years later and all the horses are gone. And so when you do reach this inflection point, you can end up waiting longer than you think you have to wait. But when it comes, it just comes like a tidal wave, which is exactly why it's so important to think about it before that day comes. If you say, I'm not going to worry about it today, it's not yet here, then when it does come, you're going to be unprepared as an individual, and we are collectively going to be unprepared as a society. But So how do you do that, right? So for example, I'm based in the Bay Area. Google this year tried to set up an AI kind of wise council, an ethics committee. Someone gets appointed everybody gets angry and two days later they dissolve the whole thing like this is just too hard people are so angry at quote-unquote big tech although sometimes somehow you guys have you're there but you're not there like the government is looking at amazon apple facebook google but not you guys i think that's down to business model but people are so angry that it just everybody's you know ready to pounce and then companies I would say are kind of almost derelict in their duty respect. Well, we're just not going to do it then. We're just not going to talk about it. We're not going to deal with it, which feels irresponsible. We have no choice but to deal with it. That's one of the arguments that we make. First of all, people are upset. One of the things we say is it's almost as if technology has created a new age of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And it's not as if technology alone has created it, but it is of, of all the forces in the world that you see everywhere in the world that I think technology is really at or near the top of the list of what's creating these anxious times. So what do we do? Well, the first thing we have to do, in my view, is constantly learn and listen from a wide variety of people who will bring to us the ability to see things that we may not see ourselves, in part because we're just so close to the technology we're creating. So, yeah, I would actually argue that Google was on the right path in wanting to bring a group of people Mm -hmm. together. We have advisory councils here at Microsoft. I have an advisory council that I've been meeting with once a quarter for seven or eight years now. And it's vital. I don't think I could do my job without it. We never have big public announcements because the best way to get people's candid advice is to sit down with them in a room, not to broadcast their names necessarily. So Cynic would say, well, we're press release. We are new AI wise council. This is a kind of like a, a cosmetic exercise that is not, not yours, not what you were just talking about. But like, you know, I was at a Stanford thing. They just announced a new human-centered AI center. Um, and it all feels a bit worthy and it's just a bunch of chin stroking and talking about the future 50 years from now. But it seems to ignore what's actually happening on the ground right now. I won't obviously speak for you know what somebody else was or wasn't yeah. trying to accomplish. But I will say, look, in the world today, you have to not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. And generally, I might even argue that you're best served if you can do more walking and less talking. That's how you go farther. And if walking in part includes listening as it should, that's how you learn more. That's how you actually develop the ability to help solve some of these problems or at least make them a little bit smaller rather than bigger. But a lot of the stuff you call for, again, goes back to this idea of kind of a cultural revolution. Because especially in Silicon Valley, there's this it's an engineering-led culture. You know, we're going to make the best mousetrap and then worry about what happens once we build it and put out into the world, you know, years after the fact. And then kind of, it's all very reactive and it all is led by the product first and then thinking about the consequences second. Do you get any sense that that is actually going to change? Because it feels like until there is a rethink of how this stuff, these tools are created from kind of ground up, that you're gonna keep running into the same problem of we created this thing, it's super powerful, it's being, uh-oh, it's being misused or it's having all these other effects. Now we retroactively have to kind of rejig it when it's already being used by billions of people. I would be quick to acknowledge the real challenges culturally that we face in trying to bring about a different approach, you know, to advocate for a different culture. We're not naive. And we even understand the basis uh, for this. You know, they're understandable. You, This is an industry where you succeed by moving fast and 
becoming a global leader and building a new market. And oftentimes people feel like they'll do that and then they'll figure out what might Mm -hmm. have gone wrong so they can fix it. Our argument in the book is really twofold. The first is that is no longer a responsible or even the best way because the adverse impacts from technology are just too great. But the second point that we are quick to make, and we say it very explicitly in the conclusion, is in the history of technology, in the history of business, no important industry has ever solved every problem simply by regulating itself. Self-regulation just doesn't solve all of these problems basically because of the aspects of human nature that you mentioned. Therefore, we must have governments that play a more active role. We must have governments that can move faster than they are moving today. One of the things that you wrote in the book, chat that was a very interesting way to think about Silicon Valley, as you referred to it, it's kind of like uh, it someone else's quote, but yeah. like the Galapagos, Yeah, which I think is a fantastic way to think about it. But just I never really thought about it in those terms of just like, you know, you're the you're so far from the centers of power, you can kind of be left to your own devices. Do you think that that's a real thing? I do. It was Margaret O'Mara, who's a a historian at the University of Washington. She just actually published her book, uh, The Code, about the history of Silicon Valley. And uh, I had uh, had the chance to read a a manuscript that she had and chat with her a year ago. And she had this phrase. And I said, that to me is a really apt phrase, which is why, of course, we quote it. And I've often long been struck by the fact that in the history of business, the economy, technology, there has never been a business or technology center located as far away from a national capital as Silicon Valley is from Washington, D.C. And I've often also been struck, as a note in the book, that the two places are very different, but they share something, in my view, in common, that people in each place, I think with real justification to a degree, get up in the morning and they say, I work at the center of the world. Um, It's sort of like the New Yorker's view of the world. Hey, this is where things are really happening. But the problem is that when you do work at the center of the world, you actually spend less time learning about the rest of the world. It's one of the things I've always appreciated about Seattle, especially for somebody who had the opportunity to live and work in New York, in Washington, D.C., in London, in Paris. I have never met anyone who said, Seattle, this is the center of the world. It forces you to constantly look at the other parts of the world. I will say Silicon Valley grew and flourished because it was separate, but now it because it is, to some degree, at least a central hub in the world, it's got to actually understand the rest of the world and connect with the rest of the world in ways that present new opportunities and challenges. Do you get the sense that that is happening? I think it is happening, but it is a big change. It will take time, and it is early days. Why do you think it is happening? Is Is there an example that comes to mind that makes you think, all right, actually things are starting to change here. Well, when I look at a company like Facebook, I'm struck by how quickly the people at the company, at the leadership level and elsewhere, are really working hard to grapple with what they recognize as a different world. I've seen people live and work in bunkers before, you know, whether it was the 1990s or (laughs) in other decades. And the first thing you do in a bunker is you go into a state of denial that anybody else has any other (laughs) point of value and you figure out how you're going to defend yourself. That's why they call it a bunker. But when I talk with people at, at Facebook, they're asking important questions. They're asking the right questions. Um, you know, they're moving as quickly as they can, and they are moving at a speed that you know, far exceeds, uh, you know, what they were doing 24 months ago. So it's not to say that, you know, any of us, including at Microsoft, are yet where we will need to be. But I'm always quick to say we should give credit to people who are working hard and trying to do the right thing, even if they're not yet at the right destination. They're now yeah. on a path. Just talking about the data center business, which I think is interesting. Yeah. And again, you kind of ground this in history and go back to, of course, the 1760s in England. Doesn't everybody. Yeah, it doesn't everybody. <laughs> but why go back there to kind of talk about 
these big anonymous buildings all over the world that are holding our stuff. Well, you know, we love history, and that's why Carol Ann Brown, my co-author, and I spend the time to go deeper into it. We go into it because of this confluence. Data centers today are these enormous fortresses, which we take people, in effect, on a, a tour through, mm-hmm. the, you know, through the book this, to, to, so they can experience what it's like and understand it. Uh, that are amassing the all, various levels of security after security after security after security to get inside all these various things and all the, the they the infrastructure and the generators and batteries and everything else yeah. that go into this and then what we point out is that you can draw a, a line from that to the public reaction in the in the wake of the Snowden disclosures um, because that was fundamentally about the government amassing access to all this data. And in effect, we ask, why did people care? Why did it strike this chord? And the answer, in our view, is in part because of what happened in the streets of London in the 1760s, when John Wilkes was pursued by the British government, by the king's men who obtained these very sweeping search warrants, went into people's homes in the middle of the night, ransacked trunks, and eventually found the papers that proved that a particular article written by Wilkes anonymously was, in fact, something that he right. had penned. But the point is, he didn't take that lying down. I mean, he was quite an interesting character, in my view, and you know, very colorful, as we describe. Mm-hmm. He, he said, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not going to take this. I'm fighting back. I'm suing the government. And he shocked everyone in the British establishment because he actually won. Right. And that is, in many ways, the birth, I think, of modern-day privacy rights. And, you know, it, 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 they were English rights. They actually spread across the Atlantic. They motivated the colonists who fought for independence. They motivated James Madison, who wrote the Bill of Rights in the U.S. Constitution. So on both sides of the Atlantic, what we are grappling with in this decade really has its roots as a fundamental democratic principle, as a fundamental human rights principle, because of what happened in London in the 1760s. And that's what I think is also interesting is thinking of your company, any kind of company that holds data as a bank, like holding my stuff for me. It's not yours. You're just keeping, you're just looking after it. And it's interesting that, I mean, to kind of go for a full circle, you're actually asking to be regulated. We are definitely asking for smart regulation. And we use the analogy to banks without embracing it in every respect. Yeah, but because just, banks are just regulated to within an inch of their life, but tech is not. The analogy that we think is apt is, as individuals, we deposit our money with banks and we deposit our personal information, our photographs, mm-hmm. our text messages, our emails, our documents with tech companies. And we think we're putting it in the cloud. (laughs) Um, We may not even think about where we're putting it at all, but we are in fact depositing it in a data center of a tech company. And that to me is one of the most fundamental changes in what it meant to be a responsible tech company. Because as we point out, certainly our philosophy at Microsoft is we don't own this data just because you deposited it with us. We are stewards. We're responsible for its safekeeping. And we have to act as stewards. Um, Yeah, because you used to sell CD-ROMs. Yes. (laughs) And now you hold people's most intimate details. Yeah, it is so interesting to me when I think about something like Microsoft Word. I happened to love the product as I share in the book. I was a a purchaser of a, as a student of version 1.0 back in 1985. There's some uh, lovingly uh, ner- nerdy passages about, e- e- about e- Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, and the reality is when we provided people with Word, we gave them the tools to write themselves, but we had no way of knowing what people were writing. 
I would argue that was mostly a very good thing. People could write and no one yeah. would know what they were writing unless they chose to publish it. Um, but today when people write, if they're using Word Online or our storage services, what they write, maybe everything they write is in our data center or somebody else's data center. And the responsibilities that creates for us are actually profound and the implications it creates for people in terms of who might access that data, whether it's a government, whether it's someone else, uh, what happens if there's a cybersecurity attack? What if it leaks? That's where tools become weapons. Yeah, and that's what's interesting because I also remember like in college, I'd have to carry around disks and save my papers on it yes. and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh my God, I forgot the disc. Oh, uh. And like now it's just, you don't really think about that. That I had that, I held that in my hand. And now I never have to, you know, buy music or keep any of my documents or any of my information on me ever because you're holding it or Jeff Bezos is or Google is or whomever. Um, and I think that, that kind of, as you say, it's a very profound shift, and I don't think it's, a, it's something that a lot of people actually sit down and think about. Because if they did, I think they would perhaps even be more demanding about, all right, there needs to be some real laws here. In a way, that's why we open the book by taking people on a walk through a data center and seeing these rows and rows of blinking computers that go beyond your line of sight. I don't think until you have the chance to experience that or at least visualize it that you can fully appreciate what a new world we live in. And that was the other interesting thing is that's you talk about where you, you won't put data centers. Absolutely. Why? Well, yeah, this to me is an incredibly important and sobering aspect of a current human rights issue for the tech sector. If we build a data center in a particular country and we start putting citizen data or consumer data in that country, then by definition, the government in that country can reach it. It takes us back to the tour of the prison in Berlin. Mm -hmm. We have to because think it, hard. Because it's on their soil, it's subject to their laws. Absolutely. They can go in there and seize it. Yeah, exactly. That's well put. What we share in the book is the process that we use at Microsoft to go through a human rights review uh, before opening a data center in a new country, before putting additional kinds of data in that country. We share the kind of thinking that leads us at times to say, no, we're not going to do that because of the implications for people's lives, for their freedom, or even literally their lives. Yeah. Uh, if what they write can be accessed by the government. Yeah, it's basically opening your mail. Yes, clearly. Does it feel lonely doing this? I've read some of the things you've read where it's just like, you're putting your hand up and be like, yeah, we're doing business with the Pentagon yeah. or the intelligence services. And not everybody's going to like it, especially including in our company. And if you don't like it, basically go find something else to work on. A lot of the other companies in a similar position seem to be scrambling or not saying anything or kind of cowering. But you're kind of, you're doing the opposite. Why? It never feels lonely, but it does feel challenging. Um, the reason it doesn't feel lonely is because I've been so lucky to work with a team of people that have, in many respects, come together over a number of years, to some degree have been battle-tested together mm -hmm. going back to the late 1990s. It's a group of people that share these convictions, um, that don't shy away from the hard issues. And that includes, and in many ways even starts with Satya Nadella, who says, let's address the issues that people care about and define a principled path forward. But I will readily acknowledge that, you know, there are days that I, you know, sort of test your courage. You feel like you're swimming, uh, you know, up a steep, uh, uh, you know, river every day. But you know, at some level, you sort of have to decide, uh, do you want to be the type of person that runs to the fire to help put it out or runs away from it in the hopes that someone else will do and that And that's the perfect you? analogy, the fire, because I feel like a lot of the big tech companies have set this massive fire and then run as fast as they can in the opposite direction. Well, and if there's part of this cultural change uh, you know, that we're talking about, it is 
an appreciation of the need to help solve problems. I, if there's one frustration I have with some uh, folks in the industry, it's the very explicit statement they'll make that they didn't create this problem so they don't feel a need to help solve it. Right. To the contrary, they feel that some other company is the company that created the problem. They don't even want to be in the same room as that other company because they feel that they'll be associated with that other company. The phrase that we use in the book is not you have a responsibility to solve the problems you created. Our phrase is if your technology changes the world, you have a responsibility to help address the world you have helped to create. And when you think about it that second way, it is actually a responsibility that reaches every tech company. And that is that civic spirit that I do believe we just need as an industry. And it's also why I believe we need governments. I I wish everybody would discover a civic spirit. I'm not willing to bet that it will happen. Yeah. Well, I wish you luck in your in your crusade. <laughs> it's an endeavor. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Brad for taking the time to sit down to letting me deep inside the mothership and Microsoft to chit chat through all the all of those issues. I will be back next week. But in the meantime, I am on Twitter. At Danny Fortson. You can find me online at thetimes.co.uk. And I will talk to you next week. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.